Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, decoding the secret Masonic religion hidden in Gothic cathedrals and world architecture. I had not heard of the Freemasons. I didn't know what the Freemasons were. But one thing that I was sure about was that this idea of the triptych, this three-in-one doorway, it's everywhere in New York City and in other cities that I've traveled to also, like Boston, Washington, D.C. And everywhere I looked, when I, when I would look at a government building, I would see triptychs everywhere. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Richard Casero is standing by to discuss the lost wisdom tradition of the Masons. Uh, just a reminder, I'm on Coast to Coast AM this coming Friday and Saturday. It's October 25 and 26. And I hope you get a chance to tune in. You can go to coasttocoastam.com for more information or to find an affiliate station near you that carries the show. Also, please take a moment and go to my website, strangeplanet.ca and register. It's very easy. Once you register, you'll be eligible for my free monthly newsletter called Inner Sanctum, and it's launching in just a few days. You'll also be eligible for a monthly draw for Strange Planet gear, great merch like t-shirts and mugs, phone cases, and much more. Again, register right now at strangeplanet.ca. A lost wisdom tradition that was practiced globally in, in, in antiquity is memorialized in pyramids and temple architecture worldwide. The central tenets of this tradition have been perpetuated in Western secret societies. The most visible of these is the so-called Masonic Fraternity, an age-old chivalric order whose ranks have included such universal geniuses as George Washington, Voltaire, and Mozart. Fearing their principles might, one future day, be forgotten, the Freemasons who built the towering churches, castles, and cathedrals of Europe and America carefully encoded this secret wisdom into the architecture of these monuments. By matching cathedral architecture with ancient temple design, Richard Cassaro shows the universality of the world religion, thereby demonstrating that the root wisdom of Masonic fraternity is the key to the perpetuation of a life-changing ancient science of mind expansion and enhanced self-awareness. Richard is a passionate advocate for the theory that a strikingly advanced mother culture 
gave birth to spiritual ideas and practices that have nourished humanity since time immemorial. He is the author of Written in Stone. Richard brings to this project more than 30 years' experience as a field explorer and researcher. His previous book, The Deeper Truth, explored striking parallels between the symbols, practices, and beliefs of early Christianity and the Egyptian cult of Osiris. Richard Cassero, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Doing great. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's great to be here with you. How did you uh, become first interested in archaeology and exploring uh, the, the architecture and the, and the, uh, the, the wisdom of uh, Freemasonry? Well, I've always, ever since I was a child, I've always been interested in cultures, ancient cultures especially, and especially mysteries. Um, as a very young child, I'm talking about like 11, 12, 13 years old, I had already understood the um, mystery of the pyramids, the existence of pyramids in various parts of the world, pyramids in Egypt, pyramids in Peru, pyramids in Mexico, and and so on and so forth, Asia. And I'd wondered and I'd uh, become familiar with some ideas that perhaps they were all related, even though these cultures are said to have never been in contact with one another. And so I felt there was a mystery there. You know, at a very, very young age, it really grabbed me. And then, you know, in my teenage years, I started reading books by Zechariah Sitchkin and, and uh, Chariots of the Gods by Von Daniken. And I started to become interested in extraterrestrials. And then by my early 20s, I was less interested in extraterrestrials and more interested in lost civilizations. Uh, the concept of Atlantis was especially interesting to me. I knew that we could never find Atlantis, so what I did instead was focus my attention and focus my research on comparative religion and comparative philosophy. I figured these pyramids everywhere are probably symbolic of the same wisdom tradition or the same philosophy that these cultures held. And little by little, that's what I started doing. I started researching the philosophy, the religion of these cultures. And I started to realize that uh, these cultures all had the same wisdom tradition, the same uh, religious ideas, similar deities. And then from there, it moved on to the architecture where the pyramids were just the tip of the iceberg. It, Came to very, it became very clear to me that uh, beside the pyramids, there was a whole lot of other similarities. For example, corbel vault architecture uh, was parallel around the world. Mummification, and not just mummification, but mummification with gold masks on the faces, um, and so on and so forth. And then that led to my discovery of the triptych temple. Right, right. Let's talk about the triptych temples. Uh, and this is uh, an architectural feature that we see all over the world, not only in cathedrals, uh, but also uh, Mayan temples, uh, ancient Roman, Greek temples, you name it. What is, describe the triptych, uh, the triptych architectural feature. Okay, so the triptych that were, it's, it's a term that I coined, triptych temples. Um, when I was looking into the traditions of the pyramid cultures, I had decided that I really need to travel to these places to look more in depth into it. And so I've traveled to different places, different countries, Peru, Egypt, Mexico, and other places. And I started to realize that they all had the same temple designs. And by temple designs, I mean they all had the same architecture. This And, and the key to this architectural feature is 
they all had the same three door entryways leading into their temples with the door in the middle slightly larger and wider than the two doors flanking it. And for me, this was very interesting because uh, no one had ever written about it or talked about this before. And when I approached scholars with it, uh, they didn't really have any information on it either. And so for me, it was evidence that there, over and above the pyramids, uh, the actual temples of the pyramid cultures were, were similar. And so for me, this meant that perhaps this three-in-one design had some type of a deeper spiritual or religious meaning. And so from there, what I did was try to look at details of the triptych temples in each culture and try to figure out what was this culture trying to say by constructing this particular triptych temple. Um, and that's what I did. I went from civilization to civilization, ancient civilization to civilization, and I looked at each triptych temple. And what I eventually found was that all of the ancient cultures, and especially the pyramid building cultures, all of the ancient cultures that built the triptych temples all had as their as the primary focus of their spiritual belief, this concept of transcending of the opposites or balancing of the opposites. And just in a nutshell, this is the idea that uh, everything in creation, everything in the material world is made up of opposites. And in ancient China, we have this concept of the yin-yang, the taijitu symbol is the yin-yang. It's the idea that everything in creation is formed by either yin or yang, sun versus moon, day versus night, male versus female, and so on and so on. It goes on down the line. So if everything in creation is formed by this duality, and there is actually a third part to this, and that is that there's an origin to this duality. Duality just talks about the material world where the origin of this duality is spiritual. So the triptych temples of the ancient cultures, I slowly began to realize, was this, uh, it's an architectonic expression of the idea that everything in creation is formed by duality, and that duality is expressed in the triptych temples and the two outer doors of the triptych. And this duality, this material duality, all has its source in the same spiritual origin, uh, the same source, I guess you could say, and, and this is spiritual. So three in one all over the world, uh, all the pyramid cultures built these triptych temples, and everywhere these triptych temples conveyed the same wisdom, the same concept of there's a spiritual origin to all the duality in the universe, and, um, and including our own human bodies. I, I came to realize that uh, our own human bodies also were formed by a duality. Um, all the ancients believed that. Uh, for example, they believed that uh, the human body is symmetrical. We have, uh, if, you, if you cut the human body down the middle, we have two of everything, a, a left-hand side and a right-hand side, two le a left arm and a right arm, a left leg and a right leg, a left eye and a right eye. And so the ancients said that, and I'm talking about the Egyptians, the Chinese, the Maya, they all believe that the right side of the body is the yang side. It's the male side, the sun side. And the left side of the body is the yin side. It's the female side, the lunar side. Mm. And, what, about, what about the golden yeah. ratio? Because that features predominant, uh, that's, that, that is featured uh, in, in a lot of uh, ancient architecture as well. 
Absolutely. It's part of it as well. Yep. It's, it's, and in the human body, the Fibonacci. I mean, it's really all there and it all features, it all features into this triptych wisdom that they all possessed. And the idea here is this duality that we all have and that we all see in the material, in material creation is actually forming a part of our own body. And so what's the source though? Uh, you know, the source is that we have a third eye in the middle of the forehead, a hidden third eye. Um, and these ancient cultures all had this tradition of the third eye as well. This is the th- number three, the third eye. This is why um, three doors of the triptych, the middle door is the doorway inward. The two outer doors are the material doors. The middle door is the spiritual door, the door of the third eye. Um, and that's uh, something else that takes that plays into this research. The th- taking the middle door of the triptych, you're actually going inward and you're awakening your own third eye. And this concept of the third eye is, is not a new age concept. It f- it's a prominent feature of ancient Hinduism. Mm-hmm. It's called the Ajna Chakra. You know, the ancient Hindus had the, uh, the chakra system, which is basically um, a yogic system that teaches that all the human body has seven chakras beginning at the spot at the uh, in the pelvis and ascending toward the forehead and the idea is that uh, through meditation and ascetic practice and so on and so forth we can learn how to look inward and awaken our own third eye and when we do we can awaken clairvoyant powers um, various uh, ability to self-heal um, things like that and um, and ultimately, I found that this concept uh, of the third eye, which is still present in India under the term Kundalini Yoga, was actually present in Egypt, in Mexico, in Peru, um, in Asia, in all parts of the world, really. So uh, the triptych temple is really a temple of third eye awakening. And um, and really, what it uh, w- what it comes down to is that uh, that this ancient wisdom was known to all the pyramid cultures. Think of the uh, the dollar bill. We have the pyramid with the third eye symbol above it. That tr- eye in the triangle, the triangle, the word tri three. Mm. Um, it's the number three. It's the triptych. It's the three in one. Uh, in my opinion, and I talk about this in my books, the pyramid building cultures all had this third eye tradition. And that's why the Freemasons, uh, the founding fathers used that uh, triangle, that third eye in the triangle above the unfinished pyramid in the Great Seal of the United States. It's because they had already known even 200 years ago that uh, that the pyramid cultures were uh, awakening the third eye. And that, that, awa- that awakened third eye gave them extraordinary abilities. And that's why we see incredible works of architecture created by, for example, the ancient Egyptians, the pyramids of the Egyptians, the pyramids of the, of the Khmer uh, in Cambodia were also um, just as magnificent as the pyramids of Egypt. If, if um, this uh, technology, this wisdom existed, in various cultures contemporaneously, so uh, in um, uh, in 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 Babylon, in in Central America, in Southeast Asia, Egypt, and so forth, uh, and this is you know prior to we are, we would imagine transatlantic, transpacific uh, travel. Uh, how do we explain this? 
Yeah, that's a, that's something else that I talk about in my research. As I said in the beginning, I I was always interested in uh, in a kind of a lost civilization and or Atlantis. And I actually studied philosophy in college. I minored in philosophy. I have a minor degree in philosophy. And one of my favorite philosophers was Plato. And I had already knew about Atlantis uh, by then. But reading Plato and reading the story of Atlantis. Uh, made me even more fascinated by this idea that um, that there was a, an older culture that uh, that in some way became lost either through a, f- a great flood or sinking into the sea or some type of catastrophe, and that the few survivors of this culture, um, in some way refugees of whatever catastrophe had occurred, survived and fled to different parts of the world, settling in different parts of the world, settling, for example, in Egypt, in Cambodia, in China, in uh, in Mexico, in Peru, and so on and so forth. And they took their wisdom with them. And that's the reason, in my opinion, why we find this uh, this same parallel wisdom and the same parallel architecture among these very, very widespread cultures. You know, uh, I'm not really saying, and I'm not saying that it definitely was Atlantis and this is the way it was. What I see is a tradition of an older civilization, a tradition of the idea that this older civilization was very spiritually advanced, and um, and the idea that there was a, a, a survival of this ancient wisdom and that we can still see it, this wisdom when we study uh, the pyramid cultures, their traditions, their wisdom, their spirituality, and so on. Now, an important part uh, of the concept of Atlantis, and I just want to talk about this one quote from Plato. Um, he talked about Atlantis, and he said that the reason Atlantis uh, was destroyed or sank beneath the sea or whatever catastrophe occurred, he said the reason why they uh, they ceased to be was because and I'm going to quote from Plato right now in his in, in one of his dialogues. He says, the divine element in them became weakened and their human traits became predominant. And that's a very important part of uh, the platonic dialogue concerning Atlantis because what he's saying is, I think, what's happening in our modern culture, which is – they started to abandon the divine element within themselves. They stopped, uh, they were no longer balanced in the center. They were looking more toward material profit, material gain. Um, in other, in a sense, they were identifying more with their lower animal nature than they were their higher divine soul. And this is, in I think, one of Plato's great warnings to us is that when identifying with the animal body, uh, we're becoming animalistic and what we should be doing is is identifying instead with the divine principle within us and um, and I see this happening today in our culture as well where we're really just focused on you know the, the pleasures of the body and um, material gain money and greed and violence and and so on whereas we should be returning to the source which is the spiritual divine essence of who we are I know this kind of sounds new agey and um, I'm afraid it does, but I've done the research in these ancient cultures and I've shown how all of these ancient cultures had the same idea that, you know, we are a spiritual being and that we're temporarily having a material existence. In ancient Hinduism, they call this the, 
the the soul within is the Atman, and we've fallen from the higher Brahman, and Brahma, and so we've come down into this world of of materiality, we've and we've entered, devolved. Right, we've devolved exactly, we've, and we've taken on these animal bodies, and the goal really is to spiritualize the matter, and and instead what's happening is is that we're we're falling further and further, and and another you know speaking about the Hindus, they had what were called the the yuga cycles and they even talked about this they said that the world will devolve um they have what's called the the ages the 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 four ages um according to their mythology the world when it's young it starts out in a golden age where everybody is spiritual and 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 the earth yields its fruit naturally without man having to burden himself with uh with planting seeds and crops and then and and so on and so forth that's the golden age but after a certain time the golden age begins to fade and fades into the silver age which is still a good time but uh, an element of materiality has has entered an element of uh, of evil has entered into the world but not too badly the silver age falls into the bronze age and then the the bronze age falls into the kali yuga age and the kali yuga age is the worst of all the ages where there's violence and bloodshed and anger and hatred and according to most hindus we're currently living in the kali yuga age the yeah. worst of all the ages that pretty much and sums up the that. 20th century <laughs> Right, yeah, you know, think about the concept of world war. We had two world wars in one century. I mean, that right. says something. Our current state of existence, you know, when we're looking at everything that's going on around us, I think all of us can agree that, you know, things have gotten pretty bad. You know, you talk to anybody over the age of 60 and they'll just point their finger downward and say the world is going to crap, you know. And so, but when we look at the ancients, when we look at uh, the Khmer temples in Cambodia, when we look at the pyramids in Egypt, or the pyramids in Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras, um, you know, looking at the ancient Chinese, and they had such incredible artwork and fantastic temples, and their uh, wisdom was profound. I mean, look at you really just have to look at things like uh, um, the, ta- the 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 concept of Taoism itself. You know, if you do a little bit of research into Taoism, it's so powerful. It's such a profound wisdom. Um, the Bhagavad Gita in India, it's so profound. It's so powerful. Um, you know, uh, cultures around the world, if you look at their uh, their literature and their religious ideas, they were very, very, very highly spiritual people. Very advanced. When you look at and compare that to what's going on today, I think it, it, to me it's very clear that there's probably a kernel of truth in these uh, in this idea that the Hindus had of the Yuga cycles and the idea that you know a long long time ago there was a golden age and yes we have fallen down step by step down into what they presently describe as the the worst of the ages the Kali Yuga age. Let me uh, go back to another sort of commonality that that you have discovered that c- cuts across. The- different cultures uh, that are, you know, on either side of the globe, practically, and that is the God-Self icon. Talk to me about that. Yeah, that's another, um, as I was traveling uh, many, many years ago, I was, uh, I made it a point to stop in every museum I possibly could, picked up books, started uh, putting together as many of the dots as I could. And one of the symbols, I guess you would say, it's an anthropomorphic symbol. One of the symbols that I noticed was common to all the pyramid building cultures 
was the figure of a human being, and this human being is usually a god or a bodhisattva or some type of demigod or divine, semi-divine being or divine being, facing forward with arms outspread, left hand out to the left and the right hand out to the right, holding twin symmetrical objects in each hand. And you find this everywhere. You find it all over Peru, not just among the Inca, but among the pre-Inca cultures. It's in Mexico, among the Maya, the Olmec, the Aztec. It's even in the North American Indian cultures. We have it in Egypt. It's all over China. Um, and it's even in Europe. And it's especially in Europe. And little by little, as I researched this figure, I realized that Scholars of the um, New World, which when I say New World, I mean uh, the, the cultures of the Americas in South America, Mesoamerica, and North America. They called it the Staff God. Um, and principally Viracocha, for example, um, was uh, the staff god. If you, if you think of the gate of the sun in Tiwanaku, um, right above the doorway on the lintel there, there's a figure of Viracocha. He's the staff god. He's in a staff god position. He's got his arms outstretched, and in either hand he's holding twin serpents. Some people say they're lightning bolts. Some people say they're serpents. I think clearly they're serpents. They could be a mixture of both, but... It, these new world scholars have recognized the figure and they call it the staff god in the old world and by old world i mean obviously the european cultures asian cultures and africa like the egyptians they also noticed the same pose but there they call it the master of animals and so what i did was i realized that scholars have identified the very same figure, only they haven't compared notes and they haven't really talked to each other. One group of scholars have recognized it in the Americas and they call it the staff god. And another group of scholars have recognized this very same exact pose and posture in the old world and they call it the master of animals. So what I did was I wrote a chapter uh, about this discovery in my first book, Written in Stone, and I fleshed out this idea in my second book, The Missing Link. Um, and The Missing Link is actually a book just about the, uh, the staff god and the master of animals. What I did in The Missing Link is I gave it a new name. I called it the God Self Icon. And the reason I did that was to show that um, this icon, this figure that I'm talking about, uh, I've... Well, it actually symbolizes the same idea of the triptych, this idea of transcending the material world, transcending the duality of the material world, awakening the third eye, going within, finding the soul within and becoming empowered as a result. And I call it the God self icon is because when we go within, when we look deeply within ourselves, we find the divine nature that we all have that is our true origin, our true source, our true spiritual nature. It's a God. Uh, we are a God. And this is the concept that uh, you'll find in every ancient spiritual tradition. The soul within is actually a God. The soul is a God. And the God self icon, therefore, is um, my my terminology for an icon that I've found all across the world in different cultures that were said to have been unconnected and that this, uh, this parallel symbol found everywhere has the same meaning. It's an instruction to uh, 
to close your eyes, open your third eye, look within yourself and recognize your eternal nature, recognize your divine nature, your inner godhood, and become empowered as a result. Um, and it, there's a lot more to it than that. I did a lot of research into uh, alchemical traditions, into hermeticism, and I found the symbol there as well. Um, and there is really where the symbology of the God Self icon comes to play because um, oftentimes you see the God Self icon holding twin symmetrical objects in each hand with the sun on one side and the moon on the other. And of course, the sun and the moon are clearly uh, historically symbols of duality. Um, you know, the sun stands for the day. During the day, everything is hot, warm, and dry. And the moon stands for the night. During the nighttime, everything is cold, wet, um, and so on and so forth. So in the alchemical traditions, the symbolism is really powerful. And, uh, and I also found that on churches, the God Self icon is visible on many cathedrals, um, in churches, and especially in the Gothic cathedrals, I have um, countless images. I don't know exactly how many images I put in my books, but um, you know, hundreds. I've I've put forth in my in my lectures, videos, and articles and books. I've got hundreds and hundreds of images of the God Self icon um, that the uh, operative Freemasons encoded into the cathedrals. They knew something about it, and um, and so they used it in their architecture. More of my conversation with Richard Cassero when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Let me get Colleen Forgus in here. She's our newest partner. She manages the Strange Planet Dispensary, and she's a professional chef and nutritional therapy consultant. Colleen, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me again today. I'm so excited. You know, I spend a lot of time... <laughs> eight hours a day probably staring into a computer screen. I know there are a lot of people out there like that. Is there anything in our full script dispensary that can help with eye health? Yes, there definitely is. There's a product called Vision Optimizer by Yarrow Formulas. That's J-A-R-R-O-W. I've used this product with clients who have experienced floaters in their eyes, have had ocular migraines from staring at screens all day long. This product is a full complement of different nutrients that are beneficial for the eyes and it can even help stave off macular degeneration which is a horrible disease that often happens as we get older. So I really recommend Vision Optimizer by Yarrow Formulas. Terrific. And again, all people need to do is go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the button that says Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Just click on that. And we should also remind people that they get 10% off all orders, 10% off. And on orders of $50 and more, they get free shipping. That's right. Strange Planet's Full Script Dispensary. Nature grade, science made. The statements made herein have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. If you have any concerns about your own health, you should always consult with a physician or healthcare professional. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Richard Cassero, 
The author of Written in Stone is here. You brought up Freemasons, and that's where I want to go now, talking about the Freemasons. And you had kind of a an aha moment, I think you've described it as, when you're standing in Rockefeller Center, right behind where they erect the, the wonderful giant Christmas tree every season, the GE building, I think that is. And you were there standing and looking at it. And tell me what happened. Yeah, um, so this is uh, probably 1998 or 97 or 8 or 9, um, and I had been traveling. I had already recognized that uh, that ancient pyramid building cultures all built triptych temples, the three-door temples. And when I had gotten back to New York City, I was recognizing the same exact architecture, but now instead of seeing these triptych temples in ancient buildings and temples built by the pyramid cultures, I was seeing it in modern buildings. And by modern, I mean buildings that were built and designed in the last couple of hundred years. And I didn't know anything about the Freemasons. This is really, you know, before even the internet, we were still AOL dial-up, you know. Mm. I had not heard of the Freemasons. I didn't know what the Freemasons were. And but one thing that I was sure about was that this idea of the triptych, this three-in-one doorway, it's everywhere in New York City and in other cities that I've traveled to also like Boston, Washington, D.C. And everywhere I looked, when I when I would look at a government building, I would see triptychs everywhere. And um, I had began to suspect that someone in the modern era, you know, the past couple of hundred years or more, had known about this concept of the triptych, these ancient triptych temples built by the pyramid cultures. And I was standing in front of Rockefeller Center just looking at the, you know, the architecture. And I I say I had an aha moment. It really was. I was dumbfounded because right in front of me there, there was a giant triptych. And not only that, but the triptych is decorated. The three doors of the triptych are decorated with one figure in each door. On the right-hand side, there's a male figure. On the left-hand side, there's a female figure. Now, this is exactly the duality that I've been talking about, you know, male on one side, female on the other. And right in the middle, there's a giant deity. It's a god icon. And that's exactly what I talk about when I mean the source. You know, this is the source, the deity, the God within, which is who we really are, the spiritual soul, the origin. And the God is holding a giant golden compass in his hand. And that's when I started to realize there's something about the compass because I had seen the compass elsewhere. And I did research on the compass and slowly I I began to see that uh, the compass is related to this group of this fraternal organization of builders called the Freemasons. And, um, you know, just a quick you know, look at the Masons, that they're, in, they're an ancient, the ancient order of Freemasonry, you know, that goes back to ancient times, supposedly. Um, it's not a religious order. It's, a, it's more of a mystical organization. Um, and uh, they were said to have built the uh, the cathedrals, the churches, the monasteries of Europe, and uh, and this really fascinated me because I thought to myself, you know, if there is a kind of unbroken line from antiquity to today regarding these triptych temples, it had to have come through the Freemasons. They're the builders. They're the mystical order. There, this is what I was looking for. So that encouraged me a lot. I went down to the Masonic Hall on 23rd Street in Manhattan and spoke to the Masons there. I quickly realized they had no information to give me. Very few of them were interested in esoteric topics. 
antiques. Very few of them knew much about architecture or antiquity or um, mysticism or anything, you know, related to it. Uh, but what they all unanimously told me was that the Freemasons were the builders of the Gothic cathedrals. So that uh, inspired me to return to Europe and study the Gothic cathedrals, and that's what I did, um, particularly the Gothic cathedrals of, of northern France, the Notre Dame cathedrals, Our Lady cathedrals. And lo and behold, the triptych is at the entrance of every single one of them, bar none. And it's not just a small thing. It's a ma- the, the, the entrances to all of the Gothic cathedrals are giant triptychs, three-in-one doorways. And little by little, I deciphered the architecture. I matched that architecture up with ancient temples. And it became clear to me that the builders of the Gothic cathedrals were encoding the triptych design as a memorial to the ancient universal religion of the triptych temple that was uh, known to the pyramid building cultures. Um, And if you look at Freemasonry, I mean, a a lot of their iconography and symbolism goes back to antiquity. You have Egyptian-themed lodges, Mayan-themed lodges, Babylonian-themed lodges, um, and the mythology also of the Freemasonry is very clearly connected to antiquity. They talk about having been... Uh, that masonry existed at the time of the Tower of Babel, um, and that mason the, the first uh, builders of all the temples were Freemasons. And that interested me a lot. And I've been looking at evidence now in the last decade, um, looking for evidence among ancient cultures of Freemasonry, and it's there. It's very clearly there. <laughs> you know, there's very, very strong similar Masonic links uh, between the Egyptians and the Maya, for example, and the uh, the builders of the temples in Cambodia with the Chinese, and um, you know, there's there's so much there, and that's all, that that I found very very interesting. The if you look at the the cathedrals in in Europe, and there it's kind of this this Christian is uh, Christian uh, edifices overlaid uh, pagan sites, uh, in some cases, of course, Christian feast days overlaid. Uh, pagan uh, holidays, and then you have this overlaying of Masonic symbology on top of these uh, these cathedrals. So, it, it, do these cathedrals then, um, with these hidden, you know, encoded messages, do they do they provide a, a, a pilgrimage, a path, for example, if you you, you go to one cathedral? Uh, and then, you know, you move on to the next. Do they correspond to the, let's say, the chakras, for example? Well, they might. They might. If they do, I haven't discovered that yet. What I have found is that each cathedral in and of itself is an expression of the triptych temple of antiquity, of the, of the religion of the triptych temple of antiquity, the balance of opposites, the awakening of the third eye, the idea that we all have this soul within. And you mentioned, um, you know, that uh, Christianity was kind of built on top of these eight, more older ancient pagan tradition. That's exactly right. Uh, the temples, the the the, excuse me, the cathedrals were built on top of pagan mounds and pagan holy sites, in some cases pagan temples. And um, 
and you know Christianity itself, the idea that um, you know we all have this kind of uh, I, I should say esoteric Christianity because mainstream Christianity in mainstream Christianity there's just one Jesus Christ, and in order to reach the kingdom of heaven you have to follow him. Uh, that's in a nutshell. That's what it teaches. But really, what that is, and this isn't according to me. This is according to many many scholars: Alvin Boyd Kuhn, Gerald Massey, and in more recent times, Tom Harper. He wrote a book called The Pagan Christ. Really, what the doctrine of Christianity originally taught was that there isn't just one Jesus Christ. Jesus found his Christ within. Uh, and that's what we all have to do. We all have to find our Christ within. There's a Christ within each of us. It's the soul. It's the Atman. It's the Buddha within us. And the goal in life, according to ancient pagan tradition and according to all the pyramid cultures, is to find the God within. Um, and so what Christianity did was they... Uh, the church fathers or, or some element in Christianity at some point twisted the teaching and instead of instead of uh, instructing the ma instructing the masses and teaching them to find their own Christ within themselves, they said that there is only one Jesus Christ and that in order to attain the kingdom of heaven, you have to follow and worship him. And in doing so, I think that they created, uh, you know, one of the greatest empires in the last 2000, the greatest empire in the last 2000 years. But unfortunately, it's confused a lot of people. Um, you know, you don't have to follow one human being. According to the ancient tradition, you don't have to follow one human being. You have it already within yourself. You're divine already within yourself. All you have to do is to find that divinity within you. And again, this this uh, parallels with Hinduism and with Buddhism. In, in Buddhism, it's the Buddha. You know, we all have a Buddha within us. There's a sutra called the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, and it basically teaches that within each of us, there is a Buddha, there is an eternal soul, there is a God. And the way we find it is by stripping off layers of the, an the outer animal nature of who we are. So, we all have this kind of uh, golden center within us, and we find it slowly by living life and by stripping off the outer layers, the outer animal layers of greed, um, you know, um, anger and violence that, uh, that as animals we're prone to, and slowly but surely we'll find that inner godhood, we'll find that inner Buddha. And that's what Jesus did according to esoteric Christianity. He found his Christ within, and that's what we all have to do. So in my opinion, the Gothic cathedrals, the architecture of the Gothic cathedrals is showing this more ancient pagan doctrine um, because the, that's what Freemasonry is all about. Freemasons, the Freemasons, the original authentic builder Freemasons, the so-called operative Freemasons, encoded the wisdom of the triptych temple into the Gothic cathedrals. Gothic cathedrals are really triptych temples explained. And how they're explained is the world is made of duality and we include our home, everything in the world is duality, including our own human bodies, and we need to transcend this duality, find the center within ourselves, and that's where the power is, that's where the divinity is, and that's where we find out who we really are. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, as we talk about the Freemasons or Freemasonry becoming this repository of this ancient wisdom, but as you pointed out earlier, most Masons, Shriners, uh, for them, being a Mason is about charity and, and raising money for hospitals, the Shriners Hospital. Uh, so what, what happened 
uh, yeah. to Freemasonry. I, this is exactly um, an interesting point because very, very clearly modern Masonry is not even a shadow of what it once was. You know, we look at the founding fathers of America, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington were Freemasons. And, you know, they were great men. You know, they, they had the idea to create a country of the people, by the people, for the people. I mean, I love the idea, the ideals on which America was founded. And they were founded by men who were very, very spiritual and very, very intelligent. And they were Freemasons. So what happened between then and now? And this is another uh, part of my research that I'm still developing. And I haven't written much about it, but I plan to in the near future. What I think happened was that starting around the early 1800s, um, there were private groups of individuals who wanted to gain power. And one of the ways that they decided to go about it was by using the wisdom of Freemasonry, but not using it for the benefit of the masses, but for their own benefit. Um, and this is kind of hard to put into words, but I think what their idea was, was that uh, Freemasonry empowers individuals, to, it empowers them by giving them the ability to recognize their own inner divinity. And when you recognize your own inner divinity, you really become uh, you know, an individualized human being, a, a realized human being. The Superman. And, Something like that, right. So what they wanted to do was weaken the masses so that then they could take the power. So how did they go about this? They needed to in some way steal, in my opinion, steal or erase the wisdom from Freemasonry. And I looked in the early 1800s and I found that there was a major event surrounding Freemasonry. And this was the so-called Morgan Affair. Um, where a Freemason named William Morgan, probably around the year, I don't remember the exact date, but like 1825 or something like this, he was going to write an expose, a book about Freemasonry, revealing the secrets of Freemasonry. Uh, the Masons, this is according to the story, uh, the Masons warned him not to do it. He was going to go about it anyway. So one day he disappeared and nobody knows what happened to him. And it made all the papers and uh, and somehow, sooner or later, it got out that uh, the Masons had murdered him. And what happened then was a major backlash against the Freemasons. Um, you know, uh, there was anger, there was frustration. It looked like the Masons were a secret organization that were plotting a revolution and that they were going to put themselves in power um, and, and yada, yada, yada. So th there was a tremendous amount of anger with the Freemasons. And in fact, it was the only time in American history where there was uh, an anti-Masonic party. You know, you had the Democrats and the Republicans. But now, I think it was actually the Whigs and the Tories back then. But now you have this, an this third party in the United States, which was founded solely as an anti-Masonic party. That's how much anger there was on, uh, against the Freemasons. And as a result of all this, um, hundreds of lodges closed down. A lot of Masons decided that it was bad for business or for public reputation reasons. They didn't want to identify themselves as Masons, and so they renounced their um, their uh, being Masons. Um, so uh, the numbers dropped incredibly. The lodges shut down. And in some way, I think, and this occurred over the course of three or four decades, I think between like the 1830s and the 1860s, uh, masonry was, was 
I don't want to say practically non-existent, but it was basically uh, nowhere near what it once was in terms of its influence and power. And then in the 1870s, it reemerged. And when it reemerged, it, it was something different than what it was before. When it reemerged, it was more centralized. Power was more centralized. There could no longer be individual lodges. They all had to answer to a grand lodge. Um, and there's a lot more to this story that um, I, I sort of don't want to get into too, in too much detail right now, but which I will probably write about in some articles and videos and, and probably an upcoming book, where it looked to me, it looks to me like it, it was – this episode where the true authentic teachings of Freemasonry, the true ideas, the concepts, the spiritual concepts, the archaeological information that I've been talking about that I've found with the triptych and the God self icon, I think it was during this period of anti-Freemasonry in the U.S. between the 1830s and the 1860s that in some way this group, this group of people um, stole from the order or in some way changed uh, around. Uh, the rituals, when masonry reemerged in the 1870s, the rituals were a little bit different. Um, in my opinion, they were dumbed down. And, uh, and from then on, you start to see authors in the 1890s and the early 1900s talk about this kind of lost Masonic wisdom, how uh, modern members are no longer interested in the esoteric truths of Freemasonry. Uh, a book that I would recommend is by an author named Walter Wilmshurst. It had a great influence on me, um, in, in which he talks about a lot of the spiritual ideas and the mystical ideas that, um, that are no longer present really in the order. And so I think a lot of people talk about modern masonry and the Freemasons are this and the Freemasons are that. I think that modern masonry is just like a light bulb turned off. Um, it was once turned on. It once provided the true light, the inner light that uh, that one needs in order to recognize the true inner self. But in modern times, it's like a light bulb turned off. And a lot of Masons today, not all Masons, because there are a fair amount of Masons that are interested in the esoteric and that do join for the right reasons, which is, you know, self-development, recognition of, uh, of true inner spiritual ideals and so on. But uh, by and large, the modern uh, order of Freemasonry is not even a shadow of it, what it once was. And I think it's, uh, it's very clear to me, looking at the architecture of, uh, of the, that the Masons created in the United States in the 1800s and the early 1900s, I mean, it's very clear to me that uh, something happened uh, to the order. And, uh, and that something seems to have happened in the mid-1800s. In, in the conspiracy arena, uh, Freemasonry got wrapped up with the Illuminati. Uh, and as you know, at some point, to the Illuminati is sort of the, the invisible hand behind world events and so forth. How did that happen? And, and is there, I mean, tell me about, you know, Adam Weishaupt and, and, and uh, the Bavarian Illuminists and its connection to Freemasonry. Yeah, you know, this is a good, uh, it's, it's a fascinating, the trouble, it's a fascinating topic. I've always been interested in it. The trouble really is there's so much conflicting information and there's so many conflicting views and there's really very little evidence um, that we could look at and say, okay, I'm going to start here. This person I trust, <laughs> you know, or, you know, this is a scientific way to go about this is to look at this and say, okay, you know, I, it's difficult to see who, uh, 
who to trust and who was uh, doing what they were doing because they wanted to help people. Let me give you an example. I'm, I'm here. I'm Richard Cassaro. The year is 2019. My, my sole interest really is I want to try to spend my life researching these ideas, writing books about these ideas for people who are interested in learning as much as they can. I have no ulterior motives. Um, I'm not trying to form any secret organizations or anything. I, people that read my books, they write to me. They, they want to talk to me or email me. They're interested in, in what I have to say. And, and that's as far as it goes. But when you look at some of these historical figures, they started organizations. Um, and then they left one organization and started another organization. And, you know, why did they do this? You know, you could see uh, some of them had the deeper wisdom, but some of them had the deeper wisdom and they were using it for the right reasons, like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, in my opinion. They wanted to start a new country. They didn't want a dictatorship. They didn't want a monarchy anymore. They wanted something of the people, by the people, for the people. That, to me, is clear. Where it starts to get hazy is when I start to look, you know, at some of the other players. And that's where my interest starts to wane. Because I, I've become less interested in history. And I'd rather just look at the actual uh, teachings themselves. When I start to find myself looking into the Illuminati, I lose interest quickly. I'm much more interested in reading about ancient Hinduism, uh, or ancient Buddhism, or the concepts uh, that the ancient Egyptians believed were, were related to the soul. Because to me, this is something where I can apply my creative ideas and, and try to figure out, you know, what this, what these were really about. Um, the Illuminati, were they good? I don't know. Were they evil? I don't know. Maybe there were some people who were good and some people who were evil. I really don't know. I wasn't there. And the information that we've gotten today, in my opinion, might not be pure information. Uh, History is written by the victors. Who wrote these books? Who, you know, Who's telling us these things about these people? So I, I become less interested. I become very skeptical um, at that point. And so for me, the interest quickly wanes. Uh, I just want to get your, your quick take on uh, Kazakhstan and the capital city there, uh, Astana, or maybe I'm not sure if it's now called Nur Sultan. Uh, lots of um, Masonic inspired architecture there. Uh, that has sprung up uh, on these barren plains of, of uh, oil-rich uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, have you looked into that at all, some of the architecture there? Uh, probably have seen it, but the word Kazakhstan is not ringing a bell. Former uh, Soviet Republic. Um, and uh, I've seen recently there was a, a wonderful picture book uh, that was put together on, the, um, on this capital city. And uh, all practically brand new, I would say. In the last twenty years, this uh, amazing uh, city has sprung out of the out of the uh, the steps, I guess, of of the of, of the former Soviet Union. Um, all right, be that as it may. Um, how do folks get a copy of Written in Stone? Okay, so um, most people. Um if you are interested in just looking a little bit more into this, would probably be well to go to Google Images and just type in my name, Richard Cassaro, and you'll see a lot of my research right there. But if you really want to take a step further and go deeper and read some of my articles and buy my books, you would go onto my website, which is richardcassaro.com. And that's where you can get a copy of uh, my first book, 
written in stone. My second book, The Missing Link, and a book that I just published last year called Mayan Masonry, where I look at the parallels between the Masons and the Maya, which um, which 19th century scholars like Augustus Plongeon talked about. And I kind of flesh out some of their research and combine my own work into into a book where I'm looking at how strongly the similarities between the Maya and the Masons point in the direction of the idea that the Masons really are a survival uh, of, of an ancient wisdom tradition. Richard, a real pleasure. Thanks for hanging out. Hey, thanks a lot, Richard. I had a great time. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to share a few details about an upcoming episode. If you haven't visited my Strange Planet shop, what's the holdup? Just have a peek at some of these amazing, unique designs created exclusively for Strange Planet by Atomic Werewolf Studios in Arizona. A new batch of great t-shirts just arrived, including one for the uh, politically incorrect crowd, shall we say, and I'm one. It's called the Toxic Male T-shirt. And those of you concerned about protecting America's electrical grid from an EMP attack, well, there's one there for you too. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Check it out, have fun, get your Christmas shopping done early, and help support my work. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, a 9-11 whistleblower shares details of a secret military study group that unknowingly planned the details of the September 11th attack, 25 years before it happened. One of the people from the Department of Defense gave me non-rescindable orders that if in fact the World Trade Center Twin Towers was attacked in the manner in which we discussed in the study, that I was to do everything I possibly could to get the information to the American people. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>